I'm Todd McKay. This is the Canadian Taxpayers Podcast. We're dedicated to lower taxes, less waste, more accountable government. We're going to do something different today. Instead of talking about a bunch of, uh, you know, different issues that are coming up, we'll get back to that uh, further into the new year. We thought we'd look back at the year that was. 2020 was a crazy time. So I thought I'd interview our CEO and President Scott Hennig and talk about, uh, man, it was, it was a wild ride. How are you doing, Scott? Yeah. yeah, how am I doing? I don't know. That's a good question. I'm doing just fine. I think all things. I think that's the answer for 2020 is I'm doing fine. All things considering. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm fine for today. We'll see what happens tomorrow. I don't know. It's uh, sort of what it is. So here's the first question. Last year, uh, you were just, you know, finishing up your first year as president. You're coming into your second year that, you know, this time last year. How are you feeling coming into that last year? Yeah, I was feeling fantastic. I mean, other than we were we were like on the verge of World War III. No one remembers this. No one remembers that we were on the verge of World War III like a year ago, with a, with like Iran and and the planes going down and like Donald Trump. And I thought, I mean, th- this is, seems like it's such old news now that no one even thinks about that we were we were like on the brink of some sort of other war. But anyways, uh, other than that happening at, at this time, sort of a year ago. Uh, yeah, good. Like the organization was doing well. Uh, we were, you know, had had a lot of victories in 2019. We were marching towards other ones in 2020, some of which we got anyways. Uh, but yeah, like I, <laughs> I was feeling real good, feeling real good about a year ago. Okay. Well, let's not skip ahead to when we started not feeling real good there for a while. Let's think about a story. This one, I almost forget sometimes too. Prince Harry and Meghan Markle moved to Canada. It was huge news. Everybody was talking about it. And it was uh, an interesting question because there was a lot of debate about whether taxpayers should be paying for their costs, especially security costs. And the politicians couldn't seem to figure out what to say. They were just all kind of looking at their shoes, even the opposition, everybody. What do you remember about our deliberations on that issue? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the and I get where some of these politicians are coming from because these are very likable people. Like th- these are not like <laughs> this isn't the someone in the royal family that are a pariah that everyone hates, or even just like some other, um, you know, some other you know billionaire millionaire celebrity uh, coming in and and uh, bossing people around in a new country. Uh, these are lovely people, right? I mean, like everyone loves uh, uh, Meghan and Harry. They they seem like the kind of couple you'd love to. Uh, hang out and you know I guess wa- walk your babies together in the park like I don't know what you would do with them exactly because I don't I don't know if you would want to go to watch a movie or something with although although she's a Hollywood star star she probably have a lot of really interesting stories uh, you know and she had an, a bit of an affinity for Canada having shot her television series in Toronto and I think her mother lived right my mother mother lives here so that's not yeah. something like that so I mean it was sort of uh, I think a lot of people were like hey that's cool like we're Canada's always the sort of second fiddle to other sort of countries like the US and even somewhat to the UK where uh, when someone pays attention to us, Canadians get excited. Like, oh, oh, we're, we're being talked about. You know, I think that actually was a big reason why a lot of people were very excited when Trudeau got elected as prime minister was that he was on the cover of GQ. Well, Stephen Harper was never on the cover of GQ. Like, we're all of a sudden the sexy nation that people are talking about with the you know, this uh, cool young prime minister. And I think that was sort of a similar thing with Harry and Meghan. Oh, we're the cool country that, you know, the, the these royalty want to live in. Like, oh, that's awesome. 
but then we found out that we were paying the bill and <laughs> but the, the other thing about canadians is that we don't love the royals so much that we want to pay all their bills it's like we like them but we don't it's not like the uk or it's not like australia or new zealand where they, they often will have like discussions about whether they should get rid of the monarchy it's not really a conversation that often in canada like that's not a regular thing for debate uh, but when you ask us to pay bills for the monarchy then it's like hey like we're happy to have you on our money happy to have you come over whenever we have a big birthday or something but we ain't paying your bills and that's so i think that when we you know that deliberation that we had about like do we how hard do we poke this bear um i think when we when we focused in on the money it made it a lot easier because and really that's what it was for us uh from from the start like it was never about like let's stick it to these you know posh royals it was come on should we really have to pay your bill and that was sort of the tone we took as an organization and I, it certainly resonated I, there's no question it resonated oh it resonated huge we got more than a hundred thousand petition signatures Ultimately, uh, the government said, no, we're not paying for the bills after having paid a bunch of the bills. We're still digging that stuff up. I think my favorite, one of my favorite interviews from this year was Chris Sims on TV in Australia, going over a lot of the things you said. They're lovely, really like them. Megan seems really nice. Harry, you know, served in the in the forces and all that kind of stuff. They're great. But... And then the Australian commentator just started laughing because there's a typical Canadian being super nice and polite and then saying, we're not covering your bills. That's how it's going to go. So yeah. well, anyway, we big coverage in the UK too. Like we, like Aaron Woodruff was all over the papers in the UK, which uh, that's our, you know, obviously our federal director, which I was talking to our counterparts in the UK, the, the UK taxpayers Alliance and talking to their CEO. And while they now it's even more touchy for them, they cannot talk about the Royals in a negative at all, because there's so many people there that are just, you know, so loyal to the, the Royal family, but they were, uh, they could, they told us off the record, they were jealous of the, I guess it's not on the record now I'm, I'm talking about it on the podcast. So <laughs> that it, they were jealous of the coverage we were able to get on, on this story. Cause it was like, we were on the front page of the newspaper in, uh, in, in some of the British tablets, which, uh, gets huge readership now doesn't necessarily do anything for us like we're not getting not like a bunch of uk people we're gonna sign up to be supporters of our organization because of it but uh not that we'd want them either but uh it uh it was funny to see just how much international coverage there was on this story that we were involved in yeah that was uh that was a fun story another pre-covid story just over a year ago we hired an investigative journalist james wood first for our organization starting to dig up more of the waste that uh, that we're seeing a shrinking media have trouble keeping track of. One of the first stories he dug up was a story about the Yukon government paying to throw a bunch of gold in a creek as a part of a, uh, of a tourism stunt. When you first heard that story, what went through your head? What were you thinking? Well, I was, I was impressed that we had a story out of the Yukon because that is like, that's, we have people in all the province covering almost all the provinces. We don't usually cover the territories that often I can probably count on one hand, the number of stories we've been involved in, in, in uh, the territories. And the fact that uh, James was digging up stories in the Yukon, I was very excited for. Uh, and I, and then obviously the story was so crazy that I read everything he wrote on it and, and wanted to see all the documents because it was just so funny. So that one, I mean, you know, obviously, uh, I, I, and there's been a lot of stories of cities and provinces trying to drive tourism. And I always find that one, um, it's funny. And I feel bad for these places because it's like places where I live, like Edmonton, 
like Edmonton used to get in trouble all the time. Uh, my fa- my favorite story from Edmonton's tourism department was they they called up random citizens on the phone and offered them a free trip to Edmonton. But it took like 10 phone calls to get someone to agree to this, like like to take the prize. Like this is a free trip. You can come. We'll take, you know, set you up, uh, take you to one of the big festivals that we have. And Edmonton has lots of wonderful festivals. But it took like 10 phone calls until someone was finally like, oh, all right, I guess I'll take your free trip to Edmonton. So, but, I mean, it was an embarrassing. And it turned out to be uh, the publicity on that part of the story ended up being worse for Edmonton's image than than the you know the stunt they were trying to try to enhance the, the image of Edmonton, uh, which you should come all everyone should come and see because it's an awesome city and there's lots of stuff to do both in the summer and the winter. Anyways, the uh, I felt bad for the Yukon a little bit in that they were like trying something unique, but these things always backfire. Like they always when you when you do something that's like too cute or just plain stupid like buying gold to throw it in a river you just i mean someone had to have i don't know maybe i guess obviously not but you would think that someone would have just like ha- would have said to their boss like okay boss let me see if i got this straight we're gonna we're gonna buy a bunch of gold check, check and then we're gonna throw it in the river uh you know i don't you know people may not be down with that you know and that that should have been like the end of the conversation instead it was like no no like we'll crowdfund it and, you know, when they didn't even come close to meeting their goal of the amount of gold they wanted to buy, they bought a little bit of gold and threw it in the river. And, but and then the funnier, you know, the funnier part of the story was they hired all those influencers. And I love that. I mean, this is such a 2020 story of influencers being flown up to Yukon to like Instagram story, all this stuff. And, you know, and they got like nothing like the looking at, you know, comparative uh, stats from these influencers feeds they got very little i mean and i i am not an influencer so i mean i i cannot say that uh, i could have done it better than them uh but like most of the stories didn't even involve gold like it was like yeah i've been brought up to look at this gold thing but instead like here's some just cool shots of yukon because this gold thing's kind of dumb so yeah it was a funny story and james uh on a more serious note of that i mean i was just really happy that we were able to get our investigative journalist off uh, the ground uh, running um it, it was this has been something we've talked about uh, for a few years and um, i mean i can't take uh the credit in in coming up with the idea this has been pitched by one director or another on staff for probably the last four or five years uh we just finally pulled the trigger on it this last year uh and, and part of it has just been watching the media landscape change and watching the number of investigative journalists of the country uh, disappear and talking to some of the people who teach investigative journalism, journalism at these uh, these colleges and schools. I mean, they're lamenting the the art of investigative journalism because there's just no one left to do it, and all the old guys who do it are are retiring and they're not being replaced because it's an expensive it's an expensive thing to do. And you know, we we couldn't do it on a if we were trying to do this on a commercial basis. If we were trying to put it in a newspaper with one investigative journalist, I don't think we could make a go of it, but because we've got so many great supporters out there who see value in the work we do, we're able to fund this and, and able to dig up, uh, I mean, over 20 exclusive, uh, never heard before stories, never would have been told before stories on government waste. And to be clear, we're focused on that. And that's, I think, really key to the work that James is doing is we said to him, you know, we don't want you hanging out around the press gallery, writing the same story that everyone else is writing. We want you far away from the press gallery, uh, digging up in, you know, waste stories, government waste. It, it, you could have a great other story about something going on, but if it doesn't involve government waste, hand it off to somebody who you know 
and get back to the work on government waste because that's what our supporters care about and that's what we're paying you to do. And he's done a fantastic job. Couldn't couldn't be happier. And the good thing is, one of the the to put a closing note on the Yukon story, we gave it the uh, Teddy Waste Award that year, which was it was fun to give a Teddy Waste Award to a uh, issue that we found, which was super fun. Obviously, every year we give we have an awards show where we give out the Teddies for the dumbest government waste every year. But right after the Waste Awards, that's when COVID hit. And it's always weird to tell somebody uh, when you were talking behind their back. But I remember when it was first uh, happening, Mel uh, Harvey, our VP of finance, and I were talking. She's like, man, Hennig's losing his mind. This thing, you know, this thing's getting crazy and he's losing his mind. And I remember being like, that's nuts. It'll be two weeks. We'll be back at it. It's no big deal. Of course, Mel and I turned out to be very wrong. And uh, within days, we were losing our minds, too. It was a low time when this stuff first hit, there's a lot of uncertainty. How low did your low moments get on it? Well, actually not, not that bad. I think Mel probably, uh, Mel, Mel's want to exaggerate it. But um, no, I mean, look, we, it, it, some of our operations obviously hammered a lot of our supporters. Um, we've got, uh, um, you know, we got hundreds of thousands of supporters. We had uh, over 30,000 donations, sorry. Yeah, 30,000 donations come in last year. A lot of those people are small business owners, farmers, uh, you know, people who who are entrepreneurs, who are professionals, you know, all kinds of walks of life we have for our supporters. But we could definitely tell that the the subset of our support group who uh, donate to us every year and have for 30 years, uh, small business people who are getting decimated. And, uh, you know, I feel bad for, I mean, I feel bad. It sounds like it's, it's not even a strong enough way of putting it. Like I'm I feel crushed for the people whose small businesses who they've worked their entire lives for and have not done anything wrong, have had this just uh, swept out from underneath them in many cases. I mean, a lot of them were able to pivot and try new things. And, you know, uh, there's been a lot of innovation this year on our end too. And, and everyone has had to try to innovate. And that that's the, you know, we can look at any positives from any of this, but the big huge negatives are that this has been, you know, the biggest drop in in the economy in a hundred years. I mean, this has been huge and devastating, and it's been propped up. The economy's been propped up by by printed money. Um, and when that ends, I mean, we're not out of this. Even when COVID ends, there's going to be a second shoe to drop, and that's the uh, you know the end to all the printed money flowing into the economy and what that's going to do. I mean, I think there's a lot of small businesses that have been able to get through to, to today, but even when COVID's over, their their future is very bleak. And uh, I feel horrible for those people. And I, I think looking at, um, you know, looking at where our support comes from and, and thinking about those people, about what's happening in their own lives. Yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty sad. I mean, and also um, for the work that we do, we work on public policy. Well, for a month there, like in March, March through April, almost all of that, uh, the only discussion of public policy was COVID. It was health and that's it. So nobody talked about anything else that was happening. So, you know, it was a weird time for us too, in that uh, we're used to being busy. Like every one of our directors is doing, you know, writing op-eds and doing TV interviews and talking about public policy. And we're, we've got a, we've got plans and agendas and goals and tactics, and we're out trying to move the ball forward on a lot of issues and everything stopped except for COVID. And all the work that we had done to, you know, in a lot of cases, uh, you know, 
move forward on things like balanced budgets in some provinces, like Manitoba is a good example, but, um, but even the other ones where we had, we had been clawing away since 2008, nine to get governments back towards a, a balance. We were, we were seeing some success, all of it destroyed in one fell swoop. So some of that was pretty uh, demoralizing, but also trying to figure out like where, what's this going to look like on the other end and what, what do we need to work on? Well, you can always look back to what happened in 2008, nine, you know, when we had our last sort of financial crisis or what happened in, you know, the eighties or whatnot. This isn't like any of those, you know, in, in that sense that if this was like a one year long recession and governments were borrowing some money, well, we just did that 10 years ago. We would have a pretty good idea of what the other end looked like. Back in March, April, we had no idea what the other end of this was going to look like. And that that's a little, uh, I guess a little discombobulating <laughs> in that you're, you're trying to, you know, you're trying to figure out like, let's make some plans. And it's almost anyone's guess as to what the world's going to look like and what issues you're going to want to work on. Uh, and, and unless you're working on COVID issues, this, this was a, for, you know, we were, we're not alone in this. We were one of many groups who were trying to feel our way through. Uh, and we're not healthcare experts. So digging into, you know, what kind of PPE people should be having and whatnot was, uh, you know, was really not our bag. That said, I mean, I think that we were able to kind of get into that issue and start feeling our way out when James uh, wrote the story about the tariff on the uh, masks and gloves. Yeah, actually, that's exactly where I was going next is uh, I remember at that time, I mean, we almost didn't want to interrupt a lot of the conversation that was happening around the country because the health was the first issue that people needed to talk about. So we didn't want to go out and do some crazy stunt and try to draw attention away from that. Even, I mean, we couldn't have anyway. I remember spending an awful lot of time walking my dog and reading books about podcasts is really what I was doing there for a while. And everybody was trying to figure out, use that time to figure out new things. But James stumbled into that story about tariffs on uh, PPE, personal protective equipment, 18% Ottawa was charging on imports of those, uh, that equipment. Equipment, everybody was desperately, I remember construction companies donating masks to hospitals so that they could uh, get through that. We find out that there's an 18% tariff, blow the whistle on that, I don't know, it was like, what, a week or two later, the finance minister comes out and he's like, ah, yeah, that tariff, never mind that, we're taking that off. David Aiken, a prominent reporter in Ottawa, puts out a tweet saying, hey, thanks, uh, Taxpayers Federation, you're saving everybody a bunch of money on PPE. What sticks out in your mind about that story? How did you feel about that? Well, that one was interesting because I got the original email on it from the mayor of Langford and he just CC'd me on a, on an email. And I was like, what is it? Langford, BC. And actually the, just the weird thing about that was that our former boss, Troy Lanigan, who was used to be, he was used to be CEO here. He lives in Langford. Like he, this is where he lived of all like the 3,600 municipalities there are in the country. It just, it was weird. And I, I get a lot of emails, a lot of CCs on things that I, you know, I don't look at or I don't read thoroughly. But this one came up from the mayor of Langford. I was like, mayor of Langford? Oh, that's where Troy lives. Like, I wonder what this is about. And read the thing and forwarded James and uh, didn't really think much more about it. I was like, that's really interesting. But I don't know, you know, much. I don't know much about this. And I don't know. And let's, I'll, I'll be interested to see if anything comes out of it. And then I didn't hear anything. And then James published the story. Uh, and he had really dug into it and found out more information and, and uh, really gave it some legs, uh, which... I thought it was very cool. And the fact that it got turned around, I mean, it was, it was a common sense thing for the finance minister to do. So 
I'm not shocked that he did it, uh, but I'm, I guess I'm shocked that nobody before the mayor of Langford and no one before us uh, pushing this had, had sort of jumped on this. Like this, you'd think that like every department in government when this pandemic broke would have been like, okay, what can we do today to make things better? And you, you would have thought that, that the, the crew in, in, in terms of uh, the, in charge of uh, tariffs would have gone out and said, oh, like here's something we can do right away that would make things much better. Like that should have been, but I mean, I think that this is sort of like the tax code in that even the CRA doesn't know what's in it anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, like the, the amount of tariffs we have on imported goods is so like, it's so obscene that nobody knows what's on these things anymore. Like, and, and, you know, you talk to some of these people who have to import these goods and they'll tell you that the rules don't make sense. Like not even just PPE, but like almost anything that you bring in, there's probably like three or four different competing rules that uh, you have to try to maneuver and, and governments are just so big and, and uh, slow moving that they just never get fixed unless you have some sort of big crisis, then a group like ours blowing whistles. So yeah, I was just really pleased. I was uh, happy. And I said to James too, when I called him after, I said, look, you, you should be personally very proud of the fact that you, you just saved a pile of money from people who were buying man, like essential protective equipment. So I don't put too fine of a point on it, but like there's probably some, you know, some company out there that was going to buy cheaper ones or was not going to be able to afford it that now can afford better protective equipment for their staff. And you might've saved some lives. Like, I mean, maybe that's overstating it, but um, I don't know, but I think the, I think he should be awfully proud of the, the fact that he was able to uh, make that kind of uh, impact in the, in the midst of a pandemic. All right. Let's start, stop talking about COVID for a few minutes. I feel like it's all we're ever going to talk about uh, forever, but you know, let's, uh, let's move on a little bit. So, Carbon taxes. We've been fighting carbon taxes forever. The Canadian Taxpayers Federation was the only non-government organization fighting against court, uh, carbon taxes in every single court challenge that came up. We won in Alberta. The Alberta Court of Appeal ruled that the carbon tax, the federal carbon tax, is unconstitutional. And then we got to go on to make our arguments at the Supreme Court. How have you been feeling throughout this? How do you feel about our odds at the beginning? How are you feeling about them now? What are your thoughts? Yeah, well, <laughs> it's I always like that because I'm I'm not a lawyer, and the first thing I always ask a lawyer is, "What do you think our chances are?" And the lawyers go, "Oh, well, uh, mm, uh, well, I, you know, I think that you've got this good argument and that good." Ar-. They'll never ever put a number on things. They won't give you a percentage. They won't give you odds. Uh, which is, I get it. Like, I get that when you're, you never, you can't control the outcome of these things and you don't know, you know, there's a lot of unknown factors, but anyways, it drives me crazy that lawyers will never give me that answer. But I asked that question. I, the fact, even the fact that they, despite the fact that they don't want to give me an answer, I ask it every time we get into a court case, what's our odds. And our lawyer who's excellent, Bruce Halder, uh, out of Victoria, BC, I asked him this question before we got into the Saskatchewan one. And he said, uh, I don't know, like 30 to 50%. Like, I don't know, somewhere in there. And uh, we lost in Saskatchewan, but it was close. It was, uh, it was two to th- or three to two. And then I asked him the same question in Ontario. And he said, probably not as good as Saskatchewan. And we lost that one, 4-1. And then it came to the Alberta one. And I, I asked him uh, before we went in. And he said, yeah, about the same as the other ones, like 30 to 50%. 
And after he was done, after he'd sat there through all the hearings in Alberta, I asked him again, he said, uh, 60 to 75%, basically. Like that, our numbers had jumped. He felt very confident about Alberta. He had a good read on it. He, uh, and he stayed there through all of it. And, and the, the interesting thing about these court cases is you have all these interveners and there's us on the no carbon tax side and there's like 30 groups on the pro carbon tax side. And some of them even get together and pool their resources and, and have one lawyer go in. But the one thing that he, he regularly pointed out to us was that they weren't making a lot of these groups, not all of them, but a lot of these groups weren't making substantial legal arguments in front of these judges. They were there to make a political statement that they were, you know, they were against climate change and they were, you know, and that was not what the thing, this isn't about whether we're pro or con climate change. That's, that's like a, no, it's not even something I think you can be pro or con on. Uh, the question is that whether or not these carbon taxes were constitutional or not. And we made arguments, our lawyers made arguments showing that they were not constitutional. And a lot of the groups on the other side didn't bother even to have that conversation. They used their five minutes to grandstand. And uh, it, it, uh, it's not a good, judges don't like that, you know, and, and we, we wouldn't do that. I mean, look, I, I, we've had lots of opportunities to get into other court cases, but we just didn't think we had a legal argument to make in those court cases. And I'm not going to waste our donors money to go in and grant, we can grandstand, <laughs> we can grandstand outside of the courts for free, instead of paying expensive lawyers to go in the courts and grandstand for us. It's not going to help us. Uh, we need to have substantial legal arguments if we're going to go into a court case. And we did. And we, we won that one four to one. Um, so, you know, the interesting thing was going to the Supreme Court. We knew, we knew from day one, this was going to go to the Supreme Court. There was no question about that. Um, and I, when I asked Bruce what our chances were there, um, he wouldn't really give me a good answer. But again, we were sort of sitting around the 30, we thought, we thought around 30%, which frankly was good enough for me to get in the fight. Uh, we, and I, I've said this before and I'll say it again. We will take every shot we can to kill the carbon tax. Now, it, it may not be a slam dunk. It may be a long shot, but we're going to take it. We're going to take the long shot. Because if we didn't take the long shot on this one, nobody else was going to do it. There was nobody else there, there on, on, the, on the NGO side uh, fighting the carbon taxes. There was 30 groups there on the NGO side fighting for a carbon tax. So if we don't show up, it's 30 to zero. At least when we show up, it's 30 to one. And we're making substantial legal arguments, which I think bolsters our, our side quite a bit more. So do I think we'll win at the Supreme Court? So the Supreme Court's already done. We, we went to that. Uh, we presented in September, got pushed from March all the way to September. And uh, it was done mostly virtually, although we sent Bruce right to Ottawa to the Supreme Court to present in person because we thought that would give us just a, you know, just the slightest better edge at uh, convincing the judges. Um, I don't know if we're going to win or not, but I think it's a lot closer to 50, 50 than it was when we started. And he even said that after the Alberta case, because the Saskatchewan and Ontario cases, um, again, I'm not a lawyer, were, were substantially the same, uh, same arguments, uh, substantially the same decision. The Alberta courts were on a very different argument and a very different decision. And so it's, so instead of kind of going in thinking about this, like it's two to one, it's actually kind of one to one, you know, and, and in some cases, uh, you know, in the view of, of our lawyer, the arguments in Alberta were even more novel and more substantial than the, than the arguments in the other two cases. So he felt the Alberta case was actually going to be the, the, the big swaying point in whether or not we were going to win the Supreme Court. So I, I'm not going to make any predictions, but I do think that we're, we're going to be closer to 50-50 on whether we're going to win this in the Supreme Court. Trudeau raised the carbon tax right in the middle of the pandemic. 
And after that, he uh, he came out and said they're going to continue raising the carbon tax uh, right up to 3030. It'll be about 40 cents uh, per liter of gasoline at that point. How surprised were you? <laughs> well, uh, okay, so he, first they raised it April 1st, which was the, the, the planned raise from $20 to $30 uh, per ton. I guess I was surprised at that one because that one was at the very beginning of the pandemic. And every other country basically canceled any planned increases to the carbon tax. Like, I, think, I think we dug into this, didn't we, Todd, and mm-hmm. find out that like Canada was the only country that raised their carbon taxes? Yeah, the at that time, we were it. That was it. Everybody else, even BC's premier, NDP premier, he hit the brakes on the, on the carbon tax at that point. Yeah, like that one surprised me because that just seemed like dumb politics. Now, am I surprised that that uh, Justin Trudeau thinks that the carbon tax needs to be substantially higher? No, I'm not surprised. I mean, this this is his mantra. Um, I mean, and, and to, to a certain extent, uh, he's not wrong. Now, let me just let me just explain that before I see your head, your eyes pop out of your head. The problem, one of the problems with the carbon tax, other than the fact that it's only implemented in Canada and Canada is such a small amount of world emissions that even if we eliminate every single emission in Canada, we can't make a lick of difference in global climate change, is that raising your, your gasoline bill by, by 20 or 30 cents a liter, I mean, is that enough for you to, to, to stop driving? No. And so if it's not enough for you to stop driving and, and raising it by, you know, raising your monthly heating bill for your your house by $30 or $50, is that enough for you to stop heating your house? Well, of course not. So that's not, if you, if economists will tell you that you need to have a tax at a level that's actually going to change behavior. Now, I think it's stupid. And, and even if we did raise it to a million dollars a ton and convinced everyone to impoverish themselves so that we could get to a, a zero emissions in Canada, we'd still make no difference in the world in, in, in terms of global climate change, because we're, we're less than 2% of world emissions. Like, this is to me, it's like your buddy calls you up and says, hey, I need you to help me move my piano from my living room down to my basement. And he calls like six guys and we all agree to come over. And then on the day of, we're like, ah, actually, I'm going to watch football instead. I'm not going to go. And then our buddy, instead of saying like, OK, well, what can we reschedule or, or I guess I'll, I'll just watch football instead as well. He's, he like pushes against the piano for like 12 hard hours, busting his back, moving it nowhere. Like that would seem insane to you that if, if someone said, oh yeah, my buddy like spent 12 hours pushing this piano and got nowhere all day. Yeah, his back's completely injured. He's laid out like, oh, he's a mess now. Like can't walk. You'd say, what an idiot. Like, what was this guy thinking? He should have called some friends up. Well, he did. They didn't show up. Oh, well, then he should not have been pushing on the piano. That's what, that's what this would be. Like we raise our carbon tax to a million dollars and we, we all push on. We all ruin our economy. We all, you know, have a lot, a bunch of job losses, all this stuff for nothing, for absolutely no benefit. It's not like we have unclean air or water. We, we have some of the cleanest air and cleanest water in the entire world in this country. You know, we're not, this isn't China. We're not, you know, there's no smog days that we're having to uh, worry about in this country. So there's really minuscule, if any, benefit to, to doing this. So it doesn't shock me that he believes that we actually have to raise the carbon tax a lot to get people to move on it. What surprises me is that he's doing it in the middle of a pandemic when, uh, when, when the economy is already at the lowest point it's been in 100 years. Uh, and also the fact that he doesn't seem to get the second part of this. He gets the first part, that you're going to have to have a punishing carbon tax if you want people to, you know, uh, to, to change their behavior in terms of driving and heating your home. But 
he's he's missed the second half of it that uh this ain't going to make any lick of difference for climate change anyways sounds to me like we may uh be fighting this for a while sounds like you're not going to let directors off the hook uh not fighting this one seems like uh something we're going to continue to push when we pull our supporters on this it's still number one issue number one issue because our supporters get what trudeau doesn't that this is a pointless exercise that's very expensive and is going to just punish people i mean i was having this conversation with a guy the other day that like I think that Trudeau actually thinks that it's like a choice for most families to either buy like a uh, like a mini a Chevy minivan or a Tesla. Like that's a like it's, that's a rational choice for people. Like oh I don't know why they don't buy a Tesla. Like uh, they're they're only you know like ten times the cost of that used van that you were going to buy instead. Like oh, I don't know that seems to me like a rational thing. I don't I don't know if he just doesn't get that or or like oh yeah we're all just gonna rip out our natural gas furnaces in our houses and just put like, uh, you know, geothermal in our, in our backyards. Like this is, yeah, that's an, that's just a regular choice that families can make right now. No, like you drive around like wealthy neighborhoods and you'll see solar panels. You drive around not wealthy neighborhoods. You ain't seeing a solar panel anywhere. You might see, you might be hard pressed to find a solar power calculator in those neighborhoods. So I, I think that they're just out to lunch when it comes to what Canadians can. And I mean, look, we would all drive Teslas if they were cheaper and, you know, our gas bill was low. I mean, it's not, this isn't like a, this isn't like a a simple choice for families. This would mean like sacrificing a lot to make choices that uh, really at the end of the day aren't going to be worth a hill of beans. So I'm sorry, I'm, I'm beating a dead horse, but we're definitely not laying off on this. Yeah. I think there's a lot of fight left. A lot of people, it's funny, just in the, in the political circuit, for a while, a lot of uh, pro carbon tax people were kind of crowing that the fight was over, that it was, uh, there's nothing you could do to fight it. And I, man, I was like, you need to go walk down Main Street. This fight is nowhere close to over, and we got a lot of fight left. So we'll continue on that. But I want to move to an issue is actually really sparked by a, a terrible tragedy. In Nova Scotia, 22 people were murdered uh, by a gunman, and the Trudeau government announced afterward that it would ban and confiscate thousands of guns. We took our time thinking about this one. We didn't react to it immediately. We spent a few days uh, working through this, Uh, but we came out, we're opposing it, we're going to court to fight uh, this policy. We talked about this one quite a bit. What tipped it in your mind? What what made the difference and and uh, made you feel that we needed to oppose this? Yeah, uh, 100% our supporters. Um, like I'm not a gun guy. Uh, it's not to say that I you know am anti-gun or pro-gun. I'm just not a. It's just not a thing. I live in a city. I don't I don't have any barmen in my back forty that I need to take care of. Uh, so it's just not part of what I grew up with. So uh, I can't say that I I am in tune with you know, gun culture. Um, so we asked our supporters, like, I mean, talking to I mean, you're, you're more of a gun guy than I am for sure. So obviously we, we had a lot of conversations about these things. Um, but for me, it was our supporters. We asked our supporters on this question. Cause you know, like I, I'd seen some polling in Toronto that suggested that like, you know, 60% of, of Torontonians would love to see all guns banned forever. And uh, I was like, wow, like those numbers were surprising to me. We should probably find out where our people are at with this before we jump in. Because we got into the gun registry issue, you know, 20 years ago, um, because we had seen that it was a huge, crazy waste of money. And that one was, I don't think that one was as um, probably touchy or, or worrisome for us in terms of something to jump into. That one just was clear cut for us. 
This one uh, was a little different, but the money is probably going to be the same or worse. And, you know, the, uh, I had a conversation too with our friend, New Zealand, um, who runs the New Zealand taxpayer group there. And he, he was also like, you guys need to get on this. Like this was, we've gone through this in New Zealand. I'll tell you, our supporters were all about it. And that plus asking our supporters really convinced me that, uh, that this was something that needed to be done. Um, after we sort of made that decision, hearing the stories of just how, you know, how some small businesses like, uh, like the one in uh, Cassandra Parker, Cassandra Parker, yeah, Cassandra Parker's small business up in Prince George, how she was being just, you know, crippled by this. And, uh, here, you know, seeing the interview that uh, Chris Sims did with her was really uh, convincing. And then the other thing, too, that, uh, that I thought was really uh, convincing was when we saw the actual order and council that made the uh, the ban and just how like haphazard like I mean it seemed to me that they just like assigned some intern to google like assault guns like assault weapons and just write down a list of any other word that came up near it like it was some sort of you know word search game they were doing because they banned like Facebook pages and toy guns and like it was done it was not done in a manner that you would expect out of uh, professionals uh, who actually had put time and effort and thought into crafting public policy that is good for the country. It was clearly done in a knee-jerk, uh, rapid way, which is often, you know, I mean, these guys uh, sometimes don't do the best work when they sit and think about things. They're definitely not doing their best work when they're slapping something together on the back of a napkin. Uh, and that's what they clearly did. So, you know, I mean, that that was really uh, what sealed it for me that this needed to be challenged. Yeah, I remember looking at it. The thing that that really stuck out to me is they're going to spend a ton of money on this, but I don't think it'll make anything safer. Like I, I do. I enjoy hunting. I grew up, uh, you know, around guns and, and hunting and stuff. So it is part of my background. But even me, if you could show that a policy is going to make things safer, I'm going to take a real close look at it. But in this case, hundreds of millions, I think this goes north of a billion dollars uh, all in. And I don't think it'll make anything safer. And honestly, I felt nervous when we came out uh, on a side on this. Our supporters were 100% with us. That always makes me feel better. But I still, you know, you feel a little bit nervous. But the RCMP's union came out after us, making most of the same points that we made, saying that this is not a way to make things safer. I was like, yeah, you know, if the folks out there uh, keeping things safe think this doesn't uh, work, probably we're on the right track. So that's going to be a fight that we continue to uh, to go after. Okay, back to more uh, typical ground for us. The debt is freaking me out. It's a trillion dollars like it's freaking me out it was weird for me the first times i started typing it and editing it into our uh, our stuff our materials um that's an awful lot of money i didn't think we'd ever get there how worried are you about that debt you know <laughs> i also didn't think we'd get there and it, it wasn't that i thought our politicians would like uh, come to their senses. I just thought that we would be successful in pushing this backwards again. I mean, we we saw the debt clock run backwards for eleven years. I mean, it was uh, hundreds of uh, hundreds of billions of dollars of our national debt was paid off in you know the the late nineties uh, through the the two thousands. And I thought we were going to circle back to that 
um, or at least, you know, freeze it around the numbers we were, we were at, you know, the 600 billion mark uh, for a few years. Uh, I did not think we were going to get to a trillion in, uh, I didn't think it would, it, if, if it did happen, I thought it would take decades for us to maybe creep up to a trillion. Um, the fact we got there from, you know, 600 to 640 or whatever we were at up to a trillion in, in one year is crazy. And, and I, look, I, I think that there is a lot of the pandemic spending that went on that was necessary. I think when you basically force businesses to shut down against their uh, will and, and not through any difficulty of their own, um, you've got to prop them up. And when you tell people they can't go to work, you got to make them, you know, there's got to be some sort of backstop for them. Do I think we went overboard? Yes. Um, and I think that they've they were been pretty sloppy with the rules. And, and there, as we're seeing now, there's a bunch of you know, publicly traded companies collecting piles of money that they're then turning around and handing off to in bonuses and, and shareholder dividends, shareholder dividends. And we're also seeing people who clearly never qualified for CERB who are being told they have to pay the money back. That's my next worry, honestly, is that uh, people who who took piles of money through CERB, who clearly were not qualified, um, are going to be able to convince the government to let them keep it uh, when, uh, you know, because they didn't know and it was a bad time and pandemic and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, the, the one thing that I thought was really interesting was looking at the IMF. They did a, they did a, a comparison between all of the um, sort of major nations in the world. Actually, I think every country's on the list, but if you go through their list, Canada, of all the major nations in the world, has the biggest, has gone like the biggest, uh, the furthest into debt this year than anyone else. Like other companies, we're at like 20% of our GDP in terms of this year's deficit. Um, other countries like Germany are 10% or less, like lots of major G7, G20 nations are spending, have gone half as far as we went into debt this year. So, yeah, I mean, I think that they, saw there being a you know they, they saw fire going on and they like just said open up as many hoses as we possibly can and didn't turn them off quick enough and, and didn't realize what they were doing at the time so i'm concerned yeah look i the next question that everyone has is are we going to see inflation and in in a normal circumstance with government printing hundreds of billions of dollars the answer would be clearly yes i'm i <laughs> Sounds I mean, I look, inflation is a, a form of a hidden form of tax, so we don't want to see inflation, but we also don't want to see governments be allowed to get away with printing billions of dollars and there have be no consequence either. And I think this year we're, or the next few years, I don't know if we're going to see that inflation that, uh, you know, that would have normally be predicted. And I think that's because everyone in the world is borrowing. We've all devalued our currency and it's not like we're borrowing and the U.S. isn't. And if, you know, you were an American and you had uh, someone in Canada owe you money, you wouldn't take Canadian dollars because it's not worth as much anymore because we're printing so much. Your money's not worth as much either. And we're all sort of equally not worth as much. Um, you know, I guess probably would have been smart to buy gold before, <laughs> before this. But, uh, you know, I worry that we're not going to see the inflation. And I worry that if we don't see inflation, that's going to be a signal to our politicians that printing money is totally fine and borrow as much as you want. And, uh, you know, I just had a conversation with a, with a friend who jokingly said, well, look, if we don't see inflation in two years, we should just, you know, lobby for there to be all taxes eliminated because clearly it doesn't matter. 
And that's scary. I mean, it's you know, joking, but I mean, that's a scary thought to me that governments could just print money and it doesn't matter that we may, we may come to that, or we may see politicians who actually believe that and want to move forward with that kind of policy. So yeah, I'm, I'm scared. I'm really quite worried for the future here. Uh, if we don't uh, get back to, to sort of normal fiscal sanity. So if you were prime minister, you had a day, you're in there for a day. What's the first thing you do to try to turn that around, get a little bit more sanity there? Well, I was going to like suggest I change the national anthem to something by Rush. Is that that can't be the... You know, I, you know, I don't think it would hurt. You know, <laughs> like it's worth a shot. It's, it's a better idea than most of the ones I'm seeing from Parliament Hill right now. So I'm yeah. up for it. Uh, okay. So if we're changing things, I mean, first thing we have to do is ensure that we're going to have a strong economy coming out of this. And I think a lot of what we wrote in our roadmap to recovery documents, which is a, uh, it was an open letter to parliament. And it was also a, uh, report that our federal director and Woodruff put out. I think a lot of what's in there is right. Like we need to scale back this temporary spending as soon as we can. We need to cut taxes. And, and normally I wouldn't suggest we normally wouldn't suggest cutting taxes at the expense of the deficit, but I would for the next year or two so that we can ensure that we can keep money in the economy and, and keep things going because there is a second shoe to drop. And when it drops, it can either be propped up through you know government spending or it can be propped up through tax reductions. The problem with government spending is they never get it right. I mean, as we saw with the Harper government in the 0809 era. I mean, they were spending money on infrastructure that a lot of which was not needed. And we were building, you know, canoe museums, for God's sakes. Like, uh, there was stuff that there's, you know, shovel ready stuff isn't always the right stuff. Like, you don't you don't just build something because there's some guy willing to build it. Uh, you build stuff because you need it and because it's going to enhance the economy. That's why, you know, you build a road so that we can move goods from point A to point B, not because Jerry needs a job. Like that's that's a bad that's a bad way to do it, and and the Harper government did, did too much of that. I'm worried the Kenny government's going down that road again. Uh, they're spending a ton of money on infrastructure that that I, I'm questioning whether it's needed. I mean, people are even talking about now building high speed rail between Edmonton and Calgary, which high speed rail doesn't even make sense in in heavily populated areas, and Edmonton to Calgary is not a heavy heavily populated area. Anyways, that wasn't your question. Your, <laughs> your question was about like getting this back under control, and I. I would say that we need to cut the taxes, cut the spending, uh, cut as much red tape as we possibly can. I mean, we're doing everything we can to block pipelines in this country, which would actually make a huge economic benefit to, to, uh, to most of this country. Eliminate the red tape, try to super boost the economy, uh, make Canada uh, known as a place where uh, business can get done and uh, where there's you know, as little regulation as, as we absolutely need nothing more. I mean, just look at what the work secondstreet.org has been doing on some of the regulations that have been cut during the pandemic. I mean, it took no time for governments to cut a bunch of regulations about, you know, being allowed to order a bottle of wine with your takeout meal. Like, why did that take a pandemic to figure out something as simple as that? So, I mean, I think that we need to take a really hard look at what is absolutely necessary and what isn't. And that's, I don't think I could get that done in one day as prime minister. It might take, take two or three, but that's what I work on. Yeah, two or three. I think that'd be a reasonable amount of time. To I'd be, be as long as I'd ever want to be prime minister too. Like that's, that's a terrible job. It looks like a tough job. Yeah. Uh, happily, I don't think anybody's going to give that job to either of us. So uh, probably won't lose too much sleep about it. So listen, we've talked a lot about different campaigns that we work on, the strategies we do, the decision-making process we go through, all of that stuff, 
all of the stuff that the media sees, that politicians see, and all of that. But I think people, especially in, in politics and in the media, would be surprised at what it is that really allows us to win victories. Tell us about that. Yeah, it's uh, our army is bigger than their army. I mean, that, that's really what it comes down to. You know, you can, if you needed like a small regulation changed, hire lobbyists, like some obscure little regulation. Lobbyists can go in and help you out and that stuff. You want to move mountains. You want to, you want to push politicians to make the right decision. You need to have the biggest army out there pushing with you. I mean, look, I, I like to think that I'm a smart guy. I, I know you're a smart guy. But I also know that, that neither of us has ever walked into a politician's office and tried to convince them that we're smarter than them. And it's not that we're politicians or some sort of geniuses. It's that they're, just, they're not interested. I mean, uh, it's, I mean, this is, I don't want to get all theoretical with you, but this is like public choice theory 101. You know, you've got politicians who want to get reelected and they're going to do whatever, uh, whatever they think is going to give them the best chances of reelection. You know, did did Stephen Harper want to you know nationalize the auto companies in two thousand eight nine? Probably not. Like, I probably I, I want to believe at least in his heart of hearts that he knew that was you know that was intellectually the wrong thing to do. But there's so many votes in the in in southern Ontario that rely on the auto industry, so they did it. You know, I mean, I I don't think that these guys make uh, deep calculations about the policy. They make deep calculations about uh, where the people are at. So our, our, our vision or our sort of thoughts on how we're going to win is we're going to get the biggest number of people who are upset with an issue or in favor of an issue to contact their politicians and push them. Uh, and we're going to go and convince Canadians. We're not going to convince the politicians because politicians are a lost cause. Uh, we're going to convince Canadians that, that they need to be uh, on site on this issue and they need, they need to take action um and we're gonna you know we're gonna send them marching into battle to push these politicians i mean i look back at the, the carbon tax is a great example of this when we were in 2015 and every province was implementing a carbon tax the federal government was implementing a carbon tax the polling numbers were were like 50 55 percent of people were opposed to a carbon tax and I, I mean, I, I think I said this at the time, and I knew that if we get those numbers up to 60, 65% opposed to a carbon tax, we would start to see movement. And we did in Alberta, we did in Saskatchewan, we did in Saskatchewan, primarily, you know, both those provinces probably more like 80%. But we saw that in Ontario. I mean, I don't know if Doug Ford or any of the uh, PC leadership candidates in that last, uh, that last PC, PC leadership race had strong feelings on a carbon tax. They just knew that the majority of Ontarians were not happy with the size of their electricity bills and their and all their energy bills in that uh, province. And the carbon tax was one of the culprits. It's not rocket science. You you get sixty to sixty five percent of the people on side. You're going to win every time. And that's why our supporters are so important. And this is why we email them and all of that kind of thing because we can't push this on our own. That's not what it's about. It's about making sure that we're all pushing at the right time together on the right thing. And it makes a huge difference. All right. I'm going to finish off with one kind of silly, funny question. Some of our past presidents like Troy Lanigan, Ken as party, super smart, very effective, but they're a bit crazy. Like they are characters. Like, let's just be honest about that. These uh, everybody who knows these fellas knows some funny stories about those fellas. What is some of the funniest advice that they've given you uh, about taking over as pro as president? Oh boy, um, 
Well, I mean, I, I actually think that, that uh, you know, Ken gave me some really interesting advice. Ken's also a board member now. And, you know, he, he said to me that uh, when you become the boss, uh, it gets really lonely because uh, when you go and ask people for their advice, uh, they're going to also think about what they, what you want to hear uh, and uh, not necessarily what may be the best advice. And I, I mean, I, I always sort of found that when I uh, worked with Troy previously was that, you know, it was important for someone to play devil's advocate with him sometimes. And that's the role that you often get to play with me and, and lots of our employees do. At least I, at least I hope they're playing devil's advocate. No, kidding. But, um, you know, the, the uh, thing that he said was, you know, you've got to, you know, you've got to make uh, tough decisions and, you know, you've got to, uh, you got to stand by them. And look, I think that we've, uh, I think that's been, an important um, secret to our success over 30 years here is that, you know, we, we treat this not as some sort of uh, hobby. This isn't some sort of hobby that we're all just, uh, you know, getting together and, and, you know, playing pinochle on a Friday night for fun. This is serious. And we're a serious organization that uh, has been entrusted with the support of people who work very hard to earn that money and, uh, and, and give it to us voluntarily. We don't take it from anyone. Uh, we don't take it from anyone uh, off their paychecks automatically because we've somehow got a law that allows us to, uh, and we never would. And so, you know, I, I think that some of the advice that I got that has been very useful is to think about that farmer in, in, uh, in Three Hills, Alberta, or in, uh, you know, Humboldt County or wherever um, that has uh, reached into their wallet and entrusted us to go out and and fight for them and with them and, and uh, do our darndest. And if we wake up every day and, and think about that and do that, then we'll be successful. And we're, we're, not, we're not here for fun and games. We're here to, uh, to push the ball. And, uh, and if we don't, then someone else uh, will, will for us. So yeah, that's, that's the advice I got from both those guys. And they, everyone's got their own unique quirks. I'm sure, uh, I'm sure I do too, but, uh, I'm thankful those two guys got us to where we are today and hopefully we can continue to move it forward and get to the next level. All right. That's all the questions I've got for you today. Thanks so much for, for chatting with me, for all of you listening. Thanks for hanging in. We're going to come back with some, uh, more of our typical podcast coming forward. We've got lots of crazy stuff cooking. James Woods got more crazy stories of, of waste cooking. We've got big policy initiatives coming. So We'll talk about those soon, but thank you so much for your support and thanks for listening.